electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and we could certainly use some luck to get these markets in the green today because so far the government's efforts to shore up struggling regional banks haven't stopped this crisis in its tracks yet. Shares of First Republic are back in the red today and almost back to the lows they hit yesterday morning before the coordinated bank rescue program was announced. Down 26 percent today to around $25 a share. They're down just about 70 percent here on the week. That's led the broader markets back into the red today. Even the Nasdaq, as you can see, it has been the outperformer. The Dow's off the lows right now, but still down 350. The Nasdaq still outperforming, but only by 20 basis points. And the FANG Plus index is up 9 percent. That's for the week, and that makes it the best week in about a year, as you can see here. And today you can see the pressure even coming on this with a 1% decline, but overall this one's still benefiting. Bitcoin as well, back above 26K, up 34% in just the past week, 32% now as we're slightly off the highs. So what's the culprit here? Well, it could be the Fed's balance sheet. Take a look at what we just learned in the past week about this jump here behind me. Uh, the Fed balance sheet has gone to basically having the shrinkage we saw from quantitative tightening. Uh, here's the period where we saw the expansion throughout quantitative easing after the financial crisis. In the first case, here's the big expansion during COVID. We hit that peak. That's the top of the curve. We were starting to pull back. In one week alone, we just undid half of that pullback. So you can see the reaction across some of these high momentum parts of the market that respond well to more liquidity, leading us to the question, is this tightening over? Will the Fed even pause at its meeting next week? My next guest doesn't think so. Let's bring in David Zervos. He's chief market strategist at Jefferies. It's great to see you today, Dave. And um, let's just start on that very pointed question. Do you think they're going to halt or not? I don't, Kelly. I think they're going to, as we've been talking with our clients, I think they're going to try to compartmentalize financial instability risks uh, with uh, balance sheet tools, dealing with them with balance sheet tools like the new funding facility, like the discount window and the uh, very generous terms that they've put forward on the discount window, and then leave traditional monetary policy, interest rates, and the general process of QT, leave that for the dual mandate for dealing with the inflation and the unemployment trade-off slash risks that they are still very much dealing with. So I think uh, you're going to see this very much go along the lines of what happened in the UK uh, with the LDI crisis, where the Bank of England solved the problem with a funding facility-like structure. And, uh, and then in, not too, in the not-too-distant future, we're still resuming its, uh, its monetary policy goals uh, on inflation fighting uh, via tightenings or whatever was necessary. But Dave, uh, and let, whatever is let me ask you the following. They, we've already, so inflation peaked at 9% last June. It's already yeah. come down by a third. We have an economy that's clearly slowing. We'll do so even more now. The job market is going to weaken after this all comes through. Uh, the wage growth is going too slow, and it's quite possible that another third of that inflation is going to come out in the next 12 months. Why can't they just wait and see here instead of pressing the pedal when they're seeing the credit system on the brink of seizing up as a result? 
So I, I think it's a look, it's a valid argument. I think you could have that argument. You could say, let's wait, let's take some risks uh, with inflation, even though it's still running at 6% on the headline CPI, which is 400 basis points above target. But again, I, I think you've got a you've got this ability now with the balance sheet to, to kind of com compartmentalize financial instability versus the macro side of the equation. And I think they're going to do that. Um, I, I think you can make that argument, Kelly, and it's not an unreasonable argument. In 1998, for example, when there was a lot of financial instability, the Fed cut three times. I think they do look back on that now and say, I wish we wouldn't have done that. Fuel I wish we would have figured out another right. way to do it because the Nasdaq tripled in the next 18 months and they had a huge bubble on their hands and had to take rates up even higher than they probably would have ever thought. I think we got to six and a half by April of 2000 and then a, a crash was um, uh, upon us. So I, I think you've got to be careful here. You've got to you've got to think about what the risks are. And you're absolutely right. We are nearing the end of this tightening. We were probably 25 to 75 basis points away from where we needed to stop, I think, given what's going on. But again, do you want to stop because of this or do you want to kind of just do you know, what you set out to do on the inflation fight and not get into this uh, this hairy debate that I think the Fed will get into if they they slow for financial stability reasons, which is are they are they taking kind of 1970s type risks? Yeah, well, I, 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 I need to give you two important shout outs before I ask you the next question. A shout out. Number one is that you were right. And many people have been saying this, but that the Fed put is no longer in the market. Um, and this will really put that to the test, to so the idea that, you know, the Fed is going to ease when uh, the market seizes up. And so far, we're not seeing that. The second hat tip, and Dave, you were so close. I almost feel like if I had just if I had just taken your point and pushed it a little bit further, I mean, you came on and we talked about this. You wrote this amazing note, but what was it, about a month ago, saying why haven't there been more blowups? And you pointed out how much of the country is experiencing losses on mortgage-backed securities. You literally pointed out that it was in the banking system. And if we had only just connected the dots a little bit further and, and you said, look, the reason why they haven't blown up is probably they've transferred that risk to the Fed. And ironically, that is now the answer to the crisis that has come to a head here. So, uh, again, well done. The question I want to ask, though, is does the Fed's rescue plan here amount to monetary policy? Does the balance sheet expansion equal liquidity injection? Um, is it undoing the effects of tightening by itself, or are these considered separate operations? I think you have, it's a great question, Kelly. And I think uh, the answer is yes. This is a balance sheet expansion. This is QE by another name. And it undoes about half of the quantitative tightening that we've been embarking on for the last six to seven or eight months now. And it's important. Um, it also is going against what is no doubt a financial conditions tightening that's taking place because the regional banks are all going to be pulling back from lending and are going to have a difficult time engaging in the same kind of uh, behavior that they were engaging in before when it comes to making loans or engaging in any sort of uh, financial activity. So we know we had a tightening. We know there's a problem in the financial system. This is going to offset that. Where that lines up in kind of the net net, is this a tightening, is this an easing? I don't know. Also, obviously, rates have come down dramatically, particularly at the front end, not so much at the long end. Uh, and, and that's that's going to be a bit of a, a, a boost. Against that, you have equities weaker, credit spreads a little wider. So that's a bit of a tightening. I, I don't know the answer of is it tighter or is it easier? But I think the expansion of the balance sheet is 
by any other means or name is an easing by the Fed, particularly on financial conditions. Yeah. And, and I think that's important. And I think the other point, Kelly, is this could go further. These programs are open ended. There's nothing that suggests that 300 billion couldn't turn into four, five, six so or eight. What does it mean if in- they need? Exactly. And and let me then ask this as kind of the big picture thing for people to noodle over this weekend. What does it mean that the Fed can't exit? You know, so we 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 have the belt. We they tried to exit in 2019. We had the repo crisis. They had to stop QT. They're trying to exit now. And this is happening. And we don't know how much more balance sheet expansion, to your point, there might yet be. So it feels like I, I don't even know if we it's part and parcel of monetary policy. Obviously, the rate hikes feel like they are a more direct lever that can be moved back and forth. But every time we expand the balance sheet, it never seems to successfully go back down to size. It's uh, it's a good point. It does seem that we find a way to keep that balance sheet large. I guess in some you know positive light, if you if you're worried about the size of the balance sheet, you know our balance sheet at the Fed as a percentage of GDP is still quite a bit smaller than the one in Europe or UK or Switzerland or certainly Japan. So we're not the most egregious users of balance sheet as a percentage of the size of the economy as other G7 nations, but still it's big and it's burly and it's certainly not helping the inflation battle. And you know I want to get back to that, Kelly, because I think it's important. I. I do think next week, Jay's going to still sound tough on inflation, and you're going to hear about keeping at it and keeping vigilant and that they have the tools to deal with financial instability and they feel comfortable that they can control the the turmoil that's taken place in the banking system. I do think they are behind the scenes quite unhappy with how the regulators uh, and, and themselves manage this situation, allowing duration gaps to get as wide as they did at some of these banks. Um, and, and and there'll be a lot of introspection on that. But I do think they believe, and I think they're kind of right on this, I wouldn't bite them, that they can handle that financial instability with the tools of the balance sheet, and they don't need to compromise their integrity on the inflation fight. I don't know. Inflation is a lagging indicator. We, we saw peak inflation only after we had done all the stimulus, the American Rescue Act, all the rest of it, months afterwards, that's when we got pink inflation to the upside. You don't think that after everything that's just, why would the CPI rate this month be affected by what just happened in the banking system? It's obviously going to take several quarters to play out. I, I think it's a lagging indicator. I think, look, the unemployment rate's a lagging indicator, but those are the two indicators that we judge the Fed on, right? Those are the metrics that we sort of say, this is your job. You have a dual mandate. Yeah. And looking ahead, we may be able to say that there's we believe that this is coming down. But Kelly, two, three years ago, did anybody predict we were going to nine percent inflation at a peak? No. <laughs> did anybody and, and then did anybody predict that when we had that happen, that inflation expectations at the long end would never even budge? The right. break even move, the long end expectations didn't really move, just the short end. So the Fed's I mean, it's got the credibility where it wants it. It doesn't need to take that risk. It's got a labor market that is still extremely strong. I'm not exactly sure why you need an overreaction. Honestly, I think the best argument for why you don't go zero or or sort of stand up and yell fire again is the market looks to the Fed as knowing more than it, even though they're probably wrong. And if the Fed is going back and saying, you know what, we're not going to tighten, even though we were talking about 25s and 50s because of this, the market's going to think the problem is far worse than it is. And right now, this is a confidence issue more than anything. It's a confidence on the deposit side. And I think the 25 actually 
in a, in a strange way is a confidence boost that they can handle it. They have the tools to handle it. Even, even if we do find ourselves in, in new territory in a couple of weeks dealing with crises we don't know about. Well, again, kudos for, for basically highlighting the problem uh, that we were about to go headlong into. Uh, Dave, thanks for coming back to join me today. I appreciate it. Always a pleasure, Kelly. David Zervos with Jeffries. Now, in the meantime, in reaction to what's happened with the Fed, there's this huge split over tech right now. The bulls on that trade saying it should benefit from a less aggressive Fed, from scarce, broader economic growth, pushing people back into names that are still posting growth themselves. The Nasdaq up more than 4% this week, outperforming the S&P 500. The bears, meanwhile, warning that big tech's best growth days are already over, especially post-pandemic, and that advertising-reliant names will suffer from an economic downturn. My next guest says tech is getting a demotion here, and he's been trimming his exposure. Let's bring in Jason Ware, partner and CIO of Albion Financial Group, along with James Chuck Muck, who's been buying more tech names here. He's partner and portfolio manager at Clockwise Capital. Welcome to you both. James, I'll start with you. Uh, conviction across tech here, or is it more uh, specific? No, definitely not all across tech. We're actually net bearish on most of the indices. Do you think that NASDAQ will increasingly bifurcate away from um, S&P and Dow? Uh, but do you think that you've got to be surgical um, when, it, when it comes to picking the names? But I think when you look at the long-term opportunity across tech, I think the opportunities across AI, productivity, and, and what have you are undeniable. And, and I think that secular trend will continue. Um, but that being said, over the short term, over the medium term, I think you got to be cognizant of the recession factor in the second half. But the short term, you know, with the, the terminal rate at the end of the year going from five and a half percent to four percent and the futures expectations, I think, is a near term boost. And, and what you've seen across a lot of these high quality names, particularly the ones in our portfolio, is that the multiples have arguably troughed in most cases. So so long as those growth rates over the next couple of months uh, do remain resilient, which we do think will be the case um, at those trough multiples. I think you have a window here over the next couple of months where um, those select names, the highest quality names at those trough valuations will continue to outperform right. and go higher, but including, you know, Meta and Amazon within the mega cap. Sure. Those are two of your biggest holdings. You've got Uber, NVIDIA, Microsoft in there as well. Jason, you've been trimming Microsoft among other names. Why? Yeah, so, you know, I want to be very clear. We are not bearish on tech, um, especially large cap, mega cap technology. We've owned them, as you know, for well over a decade. We've been overweight and quite bullish on the space. What we've been recognizing over the past many months is twofold. One, there's a short-term view, which is our base case is that we're going to see a recession at some point here in the near future, and that's going to lead to another leg lower in the uh, in this bear market, and therefore having a little bit more of a defensive tilt, defensive posture in the portfolio makes sense. So we've been farming uh, some of that from mega cap tech at higher valuations. Microsoft, for example, this week uh, pushed up above our price target to trim. We did that. It's trading at over 30 times earnings and over 10 times revenue. So we asked very simple questions on mega cap tech going forward, not bearish. Again, just right sizing these positions to be a little bit more market neutral within the context of a macro environment where we see structurally higher interest rates over the next five and 10 years, where we see inflation not being you know, one to two percent, but instead two to three percent over the next few years. And that has real implications for valuation. So with Microsoft, for example, here's a two point one trillion dollar market cap. And we ask ourselves very simple questions like what's it going to take from Microsoft after a decade of incredible growth to double from here and over what time frame? Sure. And our answers today are different than they were when this was a two hundred billion or five hundred billion dollar market cap. So, again, still like these businesses, Why? they need to be part of an investors portfolio just at smaller sizes. You know, so amongst the trimming, you've also out right sold applied materials, 
WCLD and Adobe. I mean, Adobe is a name a lot. Of, look at the reaction to earnings. It seems like a stalwart right. that maybe you're getting, you know, getting an opportunity to break in at a lower price here. Why isn't that one that you want in your portfolio right now? Yeah, so to be clear, we sold Adobe uh, higher. It was a while ago. That was middle of last year. Um, and, 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 you know, again, as we look at some of these higher valuation tech companies, and, and Adobe is, is an example of one. You know, it's trading, when we sold it, it was trading almost 40 times earnings and had a revenue multiple that just we were not comfortable with within the context of what is clearly a slowing growth business. Look at what they did with the Figma acquisition. I mean, they paid, you know, 50 times. They basically paid a 21, 2021 multiple in 2022 for a business because clearly their core business is starting to see competition and growth. Mm. So as we square valuation relative to what we think earnings power looks like over the next five years relative to the past five years when we owned Adobe. To us, it just didn't make sense to continue to own those types of names within the context of a macro that's clearly changed as well. James, I'll give you the last word. Yeah, look, volatility can be your enemy or it can be your friend. I actually think that the, the issues that we're seeing in the financial sector could possibly be a blessing in disguise in getting the Fed out of the way. Um, and, and acting, as you were saying in your prior segment, you know, a more data dependent and, and actually, you know, letting, letting uh, the economy um, self-correct. That being said, you know, I, I think as long as you have to be agile in this market, you can't you can't the days of, I think, buying a stock and holding it um, are gone, or at least for the foreseeable future. So as long as you're disciplined with your entry and exit points and size things correctly, I think there's a lot of opportunity within tech. And I think over the next couple of months, I think. Um, those, those select group of companies, uh, will, like the ones you just named that we hold, uh, will continue to outperform. So, well, we're, we're buying where we can. All right, we'll leave it there. Thank you both. Great perspectives today, James Chuckmuck and Jason Ware. Still to come, muni bonds are supposed to be one of the safest places to put your money, but did SVB's failure reveal a flaw in the system? A look at the staggering stats and what it means for investors relying on those returns. Plus, the past four sessions have seen the highest volume days of the year for S&P 500 stocks, and it's all leading up to today's quad witching. We'll look at the options action, what it means for the market with the S&P below its 200 and 100 day moving averages. And as we get to break, let's get a closer look across the markets. Ten-year yield, by the way, down below 343. The Dow down 1%, same for the NASDAQ at 39.22. I'm sorry, for the S&P at 39.22. The NASDAQ composite down two-thirds of a percent. A lot of pressure, again, on the Russells, down more than 2%. And let's get a quick look at Credit Suisse. Those shares down 7%, down 25% since Monday. This was after the backstop by the uh, Swiss authorities. Credit Suisse having its worst week since 2008. The exchange is back after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. 
Welcome back to The Exchange. Muni yields holding steady despite the ongoing bank turmoil. Even though investors have been concerned, banks like First Republic could offload those assets for cheap. That's because they're not included in the Fed's new bank term funding program. And according to The Wall Street Journal, First Republic held more than $19 billion worth of munis at the end of 2022. And in fact, nearly $4 trillion in outstanding muni debt has banks with about $600 billion of that a little bit under, and the regional zone close to $140 billion. So is there reason for Muni investors to still worry? Let's ask Tom Koslick. He's head of Muni Strategies and Credit at Hilltop Securities. Tom, it's good to have you here. Welcome. Thanks for having me back, Kelly. I appreciate it. I think you need to explain to people just how interconnected Muni's are between kind of state and local government funding and the banking system. I mean, this isn't just, hey, by the way, on the side, this is happening. This is actually, unfortunately, a pretty important occurrence here. Yeah, and in the conversations that I've been having with investors this week, one of the main things that I'm doing is uh, recognizing and acknowledging how stunned and really disoriented a lot of the invest the municipal investors are who I've been talking to. I'm I'm explaining to them that we need to be realistic, that we don't necessarily know uh, everything that's going to be playing out over the next uh, couple of weeks or a couple of months. That we don't know if what happened last week and over the weekend is going to snowball. Uh, I'm not seeing cracks in muni credit quality. Uh, but as you described, there is a really strong, inter, uh, an underappreciated interconnectedness with large, medium, and especially some of those small banks and public finance. And right now, we're talking to investors about being cautious, a little defensive, uh, but we also don't want them to miss any opportunities. Yeah. Talk, talk to me about kind of 2008 or, or past um, periods of, of credit strain. What's happened with munis? So in uh, we, we saw now this is close to a worst case scenario that we saw in my mind uh, playing out through the summer into the fall and the winter of 07 going into uh, 2008. And it was oftentimes uh, in that period of time, it was there was a lot of uh, it was difficult for liquidity for issuers to get liquidity during that time hmm. from an investor from an investor perspective uh, MT or municipal to treasury, treasury ratios uh, especially after Lehman Brothers they really widened out and that there was some opportunity there and that's one of the reasons why uh, we're asking investors to stay defensive for months I've been talking to investors about using this opportunity to trade out of uh, credits that are, might be a little more problematic and into uh, credits that are stronger. Now I'm doubling down on that, uh, but also asking folks to be a little more defensive to really stay in highly, you know, highly rated GOs and revenue bonds. Sure. No, and it's a great point that if you're on the sidelines, you start to see these yields spike at all. Maybe there's an opportunity depending on the, the credit quality. Let me, Tom, with the last question that I have for you, at least today, because I think that we'll be talking about this for quite some time. What is the risk here as it goes back to issuers? In other words, what starts as this kind of wacky, almost esoteric thing at Silicon Valley Bank or maybe at First Republic, as the banking system kind of gets a little bit unsteady, let's say, how does that reverberate back to the ability of a lot of, you know, governments, projects, whatever that is, to finance themselves, ironically, at a time when we're doing this massive infrastructure uh, support? Yeah, that the unsteadiness that you're describing, the way that they plays out for issuers is if that if they don't have uh, access to the liquidity, whether it be in letters of credit or other types of liquidity uh, from banks, then it's difficult for them to uh, conduct their day-to-day -day business. Now, I'm not seeing that quite yet, but that's one of the things that I'm remembering, again, very clearly uh, that happened at the end of 07 and into, if not all of 08, um, 
you know, so if things snowball from here, uh, that liquidity could, I don't want to say completely dry up, but be more difficult, especially for the smaller and medium-sized issuers to, to uh, attain. And when we see that munis are available but not accepted through the Fed's new program, is that because they can't accept them? Do you think that's what drove some banks to the discount window where munis can still be accepted? I think that one of the thing, one of the so one of the things that we're not we haven't been seeing this week. Well, we've been, we've been seeing two things. The first thing is that there has been as part of this flight to quality that we saw in the beginning of the week, we did see a lot of buyers, not necessarily banks, but uh, buyers on the institutional and the retail side. They they were even in some cases putting some cash to work in munis. Hmm. They instead of having their money in cash, were choosing to look at and and uh, municipal bonds. And I think that one of the reasons for that is just because of the strong credit quality and and because they were seeing that as an opportunity. I think that it, there are going to be times over the next couple of months, if not uh, next couple of weeks, where that's going to continue. All right, Tom, thanks so much for joining us today. We appreciate it. Thanks, Kelly. Tom Koslick with Hilltop. Coming up, another outperformer this week has actually been the cloud stocks. The cloud computing ETF, SKY, still up 5% since Monday. We'll hear from a leading voice in that space next. On the flip side, check out some of the losses in commercial real estate. These are weak to date. SL Green, Boston Properties down more than 20%. Another worry for regional banks was similarly high office exposure, by the way. The exchange is back after this. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back, everybody. New developments in the U.S. Virgin Islands lawsuit against J.P. Morgan over Jeffrey Epstein. Let's get to Eamon Javers with the very latest. Eamon? Hey there, Kelly. In a courtroom last night in New York, attorneys for the U.S. Virgin Islands targeted J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon as directly as we have seen so far in their case, alleging that the bank aided Jeffrey Epstein in his decades of sex crimes. The direct allegations against Dimon raise questions about how J.P. Morgan is going to defend itself here and if this case will have any impact on Dimon's legacy as one of the most powerful titans of Wall Street. Last week, J.P. Morgan sued its own former executive, Jess Staley, alleging that if there was any Epstein-related wrongdoing at the bank, it was done by Staley without the knowledge of other executives. In essence, J.P. Morgan was painting Staley as a rogue employee. But last night, attorneys for the U.S. Virgin Islands said they don't buy that argument. An attorney for the U.S. Virgin Islands said if Staley is a rogue employee, why isn't Jamie Dimon? And argued Staley knew Diamond knew, J.P. Morgan Chase knew. Of J.P. Morgan generally, the attorney said, they broke every rule to facilitate his sex trafficking in exchange for Epstein's wealth, connections, and referrals. For its part, J.P. Morgan argued that, quote, all roads lead to Staley in this case, and they took issue with the idea that Jamie Diamond had any specific knowledge. J.P. Morgan has asserted that Diamond has no recollection of ever reviewing the Epstein accounts at the bank. A federal judge sided with the USVI against J.P. Morgan on one point and agreed that the USVI does have the ability to bring a case on behalf of anyone who was a resident there. The attorney for the U.S. Virgin Islands did not present evidence to prove her claim that Diamond knew about Epstein's crimes, but said in court that there will be numerous documents in this case that go beyond Staley's office, quote, to the executive suite. I reached out to J.P. Morgan for comment this morning on last night's hearing but they declined to respond on the record. Back over to you, Kelly. How much longer should this hearing take place for in terms of any further allegations that we might hear? 
Well, we're going to expect discovery to continue, and the U.S. Virgin Islands side is going to get a tranche of J.P. Morgan documents uh, any, time, any day now. We're going to see more hearings next, uh, next month, and we do expect this to go all the way through the fall, Kelly. So a lot more wow. to come here on this story, and a big uh, question mark here for Jamie Dimon. We'll hear from uh, J.P. Morgan. As soon as they respond to us, uh, we'll tell you what they had to say. All right, Eamon, thank you. Eamon Javers. You bet. Let's turn to Tyler Matheson now for the CNBC News update. Tyler? Kelly, thank you very much. President Biden is calling on Congress to give regulators more power to punish executives if their mismanagement leads to their bank's failure. But based on his response to a question from NBC News today, it sounds like House Speaker Kevin McCarthy isn't ready to jump on board. Do you think that there's any congressional action that can be done in terms of the SVB in reaction to the SVB bank situation? Well, I think you want to get all the facts, but it seems as though the regulators didn't do their job. I don't know the need to do legislation. The Justice Department, meantime, investigating the Chinese company that owns TikTok after it admitted that some of its employees had improperly obtained the data of two U.S. reporters. That is according to the New York Times. The Biden administration threatening to ban the app if it isn't sold, citing national security concerns over users' information and privacy. And YouTube has restored former President Trump's channel, saying it is balancing the continued risk of real-world violence with the need for voters to hear equally from major presidential candidates. There is no mention of, quote, guardrails like those put in place by Facebook when it reinstated Mr. Trump's account. Kelly, back to you. See you in a bit. Tyler, thank you. Looking forward to it. It's been a wild week for the markets. Believe it or not, all three major averages are actually positive, although just by a hair for the Dow right now, which is down 300 points today. So how should you position now? Let's bring in Chris Murphy of Susquehanna. We talk about the options market in particular is saying here. And Randall Ely, he's chief investment officer at Edgar Lomax uh, to talk about where people might see opportunity right now. Welcome to both of you. Chris, let's start with you. Uh, we like to check in with you on quad witching day. Uh, is the market's already casting a vote, I guess, though, about some concern there. Uh, we've seen the VIX jumping a little bit this week. How would you describe liquidity conditions? Well, like you said, it has been a wild week um, in terms of each specific move on each day. You know, we're still up on, on the week. Um, but despite being up on the week, the VIX is either flat or, or maybe up small. And the VIX, which measures VIX volatility, is up. So there's still a lot of concern out there. Uh, the main reason those um, you know, VIX and VVIX are remaining on the higher end and staying firm while the market rallies is because uh, investors are more worried about the downside tail options. You know, during the, um, you know, the inflation and the Fed and the higher rates of the last year, that was pretty well known and priced in. But uh, at least from a volatility perspective, now we have this new kind of unknown kind of bank issue. And that's leading to much more demand for downside put protection, which increases uh, skew on something like the S&P 500. You know, a lot's been made, Chris, of the fact that Treasury liquidity is not what it used to be. And people are obviously concerned about that, especially when you see 12 standard deviation swings multiple times in one week. Is that a problem that's unique to the Treasury market or is it any sign of a broader concern, um, maybe starting with people backing away from perhaps equities or options this week? No, you know, I think that whenever volatility is higher and uncertainty is higher, markets are going to thin out and they're going to uh, um, get wider. Um, but, you know, the use of ETFs, even, for example, the KRE ETF, sure, it's it's down a lot, but it did absorb a lot of supply and it was used as a vehicle for directional exposure. So I think the increased usage of options and the increased usage of ETFs are actually, you know, 
um, in some ways adding to different avenues for investors to hedge their risk and, and in some ways um, providing extra liquidity. Has there been any direct impact of the banking problems onto Wall Street, in other words, onto the accounts that people have, the trades that they're making? Uh, obviously, Charles Schwab has been one of the names in particular here. Do you discern any direct uh, connection here? No, not not that we're seeing. I mean, obviously, we're trading with institutional uh, clients that you know are, are backed and clearing through the OCC. So you know, not really seeing anything too crazy. You know, when you have uncertainty uh, over uh, banks and liquidity, of course, volatility is going to be higher. Of course, the VIX is going to spike. But kind of going back to the U.S. Treasury volatility, uh, if you're going to look at something like the Move Index compared to where the VIX is, it's not even close. Uh, equity volatility is hanging in there a whole lot more than treasury volatility. If you look back historically and you were just to compare the move index to the VIX. So the forward rate versus kind of option spread. Um, I don't know. I don't know how you guys pronounce that for the lingo. Um, when we start to see these things widening out, when we see overnight rates jumping, um, is that something that concerns you or is it just kind of, OK, well, things seized up this week and we can kind of go back to normal as 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 it shakes out? What is that? What is the message that's sending? Well, yeah, I mean, I think once again, it's a typical reaction to, to what has been going on, you know, and once when we're looking at the options and we I believe that the VIX, it's kind of back going back and forth, but the term structure is not even inverted right now. And if you look at something like the S&P 500 and you were to compare the total size of the whole financial sector compared to a number of the big fangs, you know, the Part of the reason why the equity market, if you just look at the S&P, is hanging in there is because of those you know, big tech stocks. So as of now, it's, it's, it's relatively contained. You know, once again, the, the S&P is up 1.5% this week. So we're not necessarily seeing quite as much of that kind of stress um, in the options and the equity volatility markets. All right, great. We'll let you go. But was there, I'm just looking in particular, your notes of Bank of America, for instance, seeing some volume, um, even American, Carnival. What can you say about that? Well, the great thing about call options is, you know, if you are not sure that the stock is going to rebound, but you would like to take a chance uh, and you got the Fed event looming next week, uh, you can look at, we saw a lot of call buying in Carnival Cruise, American Airlines, uh, United Airlines, Bank of America, just to name a few. But uh, we certainly are seeing underinvested investment community still want some upside exposure via buying call options. All right, Chris, thank you. Good to have you on today. Chris Murphy with Susquehanna. Okay, we've read the tea leaves a little bit. Let's talk about where you should be buying stocks right now with Randall Ely. Randall, options? You, you got clients who would, or a plain vanilla stock ownership, or do they want no stock ownership these days? Yeah, most of our clients will want uh, just basic stock ownership. Let me just mention, I think it's important for everyone who is trying to invest long-term, which I think is the best way to do it, to understand that what is going on is the Federal Reserve is removing the biggest punch bowl by four in American history. And when that happens, uh, you're going to have some unintended consequences, such as the banking crisis we're going through right now. Uh, but the United States is going to survive this. I, I feel that very strongly. Uh, you know, we've got the assets. And volatility, uh, when it comes to securities, particularly investment grade, whether stocks or bonds, is part of the price we have to pay. Long-term investors will continue investing in stocks in particular that are valued correctly, meaning not overvalued, and that have strong balance sheets, 
uh, don't have a lot of debt. And this is something, Kelly, you will remember I've talked about for a long time. And so in this market, we're seeing the value of that. So I, I love the reassurance, Randall, except for the fact that you need to give it. You know, usually when we get to the point of, you know, the country can survive, we don't really want to be there. You know, we've talked exactly. in, in the past about stocks like AT&T that you like. I don't know if you'd want to kind of weigh in on that one. In general, Randall, people right now are looking at yields and saying, well, wait a minute. I've seen First Republic cut its dividend. I've seen Intel cut its dividend. I'm yes. probably forgetting some others. How do you sort through the names out there and confidently pick both a yield if people want that in this environment, a stock that you can own for a while and not be exposed to uh, that dividend cut risk? That's right. You, you, you've got to separate between those that have strong financial positions first. Intel, as far as we can see, um, is uh, their earnings are not what we like, but it's still a strong company financially. Wherein, when you get to you know these regional banks that are cutting dividends, it's for a different reason. So, Intel's management needs to uh, they need to get more efficient in the way they're running the operation, and uh, and show us what they can do with the great amount of assets they have. But we need to stay away from companies that uh, that are paying dividends sim- out of a dwindling supply of money, and therefore the company go out of business. But and even, so I, I gave you three names, I think, that I think will meet that test. Yes, and I'll, I'll sort of steal your punchline. You like Exelon, the utility, General Dynamics, you like Pfizer. But even names like Disney and Starbucks, if I'm not mistaken, have seen dividends under pressure. No one thinks those companies are going away. But That's I right. wonder if that tells us that when they have to prioritize growth or reinvestment or expensive streaming or what have you, that, you know, these things aren't always Teflon. Uh, that's right. We're, we're, we're going to leave the running of the individual companies to the management, but it's a fact of life. In a market like this, where so many companies are now struggling to, to get access to finances, I mean, they're suddenly realizing that they can't borrow uh, the kind of money they could even a year ago. I mean, the Fed is pulling back. So in this kind of market, the companies that have husbanded their, their capital, uh, they can find other opportunities in being able to provide that capital whether it's in distress situations or whether it's just growing their business now in a in a lower cost way. All right, Randall, really great to have you here today. Thanks for sharing your wisdom. We appreciate it. Randall Ely with Edgar Lomax. Coming up next, a cybersecurity name climbing 3% this week. And Morgan Stanley says there could be more strength in this sector in the wake of SVB's collapse. We'll explain and hear from the CEO next. And as we head to break, let's take a look at gold climbing to the highest level in nearly a year, up nearly 3%. Today, it's the new momentum trade. We're back after this. Welcome back, everybody. Time now for Tech Check. How does the banking turmoil we're seeing in the market raise the risk for cyber attacks? There's a connection, believe it or not. Deirdre Bosa is here with the story. Hi, Deirdre. There most certainly is a connection. And to answer your question, it raises the risk by a lot. In fact, Cloudflare, one of the biggest cybersecurity companies, has been monitoring the fallout and seen a spike in attacks on the sector. I just spoke to CEO Matthew Prince. We're seeing that um, across a broad set of of, of banks. Um, uh, Silicon Valley Bank definitely had the sort of early uh, pickup, but Signature Bank uh, and now Credit Suisse uh, and First Republic we're seeing as also additional targets where, again, criminals are posing as if they uh, either are the bank and saying, here's how you can recover your funds or here's how you can secure your funds. Or the other type of threat that we're seeing is that oftentimes uh, the criminals are sending messages to what might be customers of, of vendors that use 
the uh, Silicon Valley Bank or one of the other banks. Prince says that the banking sector itself has done a pretty good job of putting the right protections in place, but they're still vulnerable to attacks on some of their largest customers. I think right now the bigger risk is with uh, the various uh, uh, companies that might be using the banks and how they might be scammed during this time of stress. Um, and we do see that there are attacks that go against the financial sector. But if we look at all of the different sectors that are out there, financial services and the banking industry actually is, is probably at the front of the pack in terms of uh, cybersecurity protections. And, and, I, and, and that isn't one of the things that is sort of top of my list of concerns this week. So, Kelly, everything that we're hearing and, you know, Matthew Prince saying that attacks are on the rise, this bodes well for cyber spending, cybersecurity spending in the months and years ahead, even against a softer economic backdrop. And we know that it has been one area of tech that has held up better and that's likely to continue. Yeah, I thought, Deirdre, it was uh, so fascinating as well. You were saying yesterday about how there's still this kind of notion of wanting to come back and try to support SVB through its struggles this morning you know it's filing for a reorg and uh, it's going to have many many chapters to uh, come and sorting this out just give us an update you think on where sentiment in the valley stands i think sentiment in the valley is, is similar to where it has been i mean silicon valley bank has been a partner through the dot-com bus through the global financial crisis i think there's uncertainty though no one knows what it's going to look like going forward they want a partner that's going to serve tech specifically, whether that's Silicon Valley Bank or someone else. A lot of people I talk to just don't see anyone that is able to fulfill that role. So they say if Silicon Valley Bank has the right management, has the right assets, they'll go back. But this is a time of opportunity, Kelly. I speak to founders who say that they're being pinged by private bankers, other institutions, all trying to offer the similar kinds of products and step into that space. We'll see if anyone's able to do it. All right, Deirdre, thank you, Deirdre Bosa. Still ahead, new inflation expectations data this morning shows American consumers becoming even less concerned about future inflation. So does that mean the Fed can pause here at its meeting next week? We're asking the Wall Street Journal's Nick Timoros next. And some of the street's most high-profile investors have weighed in on that very question all week here on CNBC. Here's what they had to say. I think we'll raise rates 25 basis points. You do have inflation. I mean, look, if, if you stop, you know, if they don't raise rates next week or next month, I, I don't know. But I don't think, I really don't think this is a choice. If we did not have this mess, they should be hiking 50 basis points. Um, I think that should go 25. I would think that the Fed could be in a position, um, certainly to only go up by 25, but actually to justify a pause. The Fed won't be raising rates because it's scared. Well, if the Fed is scared, you should be scared. Welcome back to The Exchange. We've got a quick news alert on Credit Suisse. There are now reports that at least four global banks, including Sockgen and Deutsche Bank, have put restrictions on their trades involving Credit Suisse and its securities. We'll be following that story as the equity trading here dips back below $2 a share. It's a 9% decline on the session, takes us back to where it was before the backstop by Swiss authorities. And given the ongoing uncertainty in the marketplace, expectations of a half-point Fed hike next week seem to be off the table. The street now divided between a quarter point or a flat-out pause. Joining me now with what he expects is Nick Timoros, chief economics correspondent for The Wall Street Journal. You know, it's so tempting to go down memory lane, Nick. It's so good to see you again. Uh, but we can't waste anybody's precious time here in the middle of this, uh, shall I say, banking crisis. So um, as much as you can tell us, what are you hearing? Uh, the last I could read between the lines, I was thinking, I don't know, maybe they're going to pause. 
Well, I'm hearing the same thing everybody else is hearing, which is that there's a case to be made for going by 25, and there's a case to be made for uh, skipping. And I think it really depends, Kelly, on what happens with the state of the markets and this financial instability risk over the next few days. You know, you have people like former Boston Fed President Eric Rosengren saying you can't just assume that you're back to normal here after an earthquake. You should probably wait and see if they're going to be aftershocks. So he's he's in the skip camp. And then you have quite a number of uh, former Fed officials and you played them just before the break. there, saying, yeah, you can probably do a quarter point because before all of this happened, it looked like you should have been doing a half point. The data has been very hot. Inflation is still a problem. So this is going to be an interesting one, Kelly. So the consumer sentiment data this morning I felt like was very important last June because before they upsized to do the first 75 basis point rate hike, it was after the consumer inflation expectations really jumped. Um, but we also got, of course, the same day that really hot CPI report. Today, it's kind of the opposite. You know, this morning, the one year, I think the three year, if I'm not mistaken, saw further declines. Would that, you think, make those um, afraid about inflation go, OK, well, maybe, you know, it's come down the consumer. If, if like, like Steve has told us, if the most important thing is to make sure inflation doesn't get entrenched, the data this morning are telling us they've got room to pause. Well, the question here is, what is the right tool for the job? And the Fed has been pretty clear that, you know, this is not the place they want to be where people are talking about them changing monetary policy to deal with a financial problem. On the other hand, you know, at, at a certain point, financial problems get serious enough that you do have to use your monetary policy tool. But I think everything we had heard from the Fed before this happened was we have the tools to deal with financial stability problems so that we can keep our eyes on the prize of restoring price stability. And the actions you've seen this week would be consistent with that, using the discount window, the new bank term funding program, uh, even the private sector action yesterday, all about saying there are things we can do without having to change uh, interest rates and change the direction of monetary policy because inflation is still a problem. But you're now trying to determine, Kelly, what are the lags of monetary policy, but also what are the lags from the credit contraction you could see as these small banks uh, pull back on lending? Absolutely. Look, you know, loan standards are part of the leading indicators. Uh, co composite it already declined again. It's declined for the last 11 months. So it's not like we had a fine economy and then these problems cropped up in the banking sector. I want to show you what's happening in the market for expectations of where the Fed funds rate is going. Nick, as you probably already know, we now have the January contract saying Fed funds is going to be back below 4%. So we're aware right now, I mean, how many points of cutting is that already pricing in? It feels to me like, especially as the regional bank problems are worsening, we're watching those tick down. And, and they seem to be telling us that as, as those problems get worse, the likelihood of potentially significant rate cuts by the end of this year are growing. Well, and, you know, these have been all over the place the last few days, right? I mean, it's head spinning, just the kind of moves you're seeing. And I think, again, it speaks to real difficult questions over what are the spillovers from this? You know, the, the question before all this happened was, where where is the impact of all this tightening? You, you've seen a lot, you know, four, four and a half percentage points. Uh, I compare it to that glass ketchup bottle. You keep hitting the bottle, nothing comes out. So you hit it a little bit harder and then everything comes out. And that probably isn't the situation the Fed wants to get into here where you've got a financial stability mess. On the other hand, you know, I've talked to a number of former Fed officials who are saying you really don't want to risk a market melt up because you decide to skip a rate hike next week. And then there's a big rally 
and you're easing financial conditions and the economy's overheating. So definitely a difficult uh, balancing action. Like I said, it isn't a place the Fed wanted to find itself in, but it's where they are right now. And real, uh, real quickly, well, they're saying I'm out of time. All right. In two words, when we saw the two-year, three-month get the most inverted it's been since 2000, we had an, an emergency or sort of out-of-the-blue rate cut after that. Any chatter you're picking up about anything like that being on the table? I haven't heard. I mean, have you? No, I, I don't see anybody talking about that right now. But uh, we'll, we'll see. I mean, things are moving fast. Yeah, well said. Nick, great to see you again. Thanks for your time today. Thank really you. appreciate it. Nick Timoros with The Wall Street Journal. Before we go, I just want to draw your attention to a recent tweet from Bill Ackman, who now says he's hearing that Bank of America is going to buy Signature Bank on Monday. Unless until and until we can protect uninsured deposits, he says the cost of capital is going to rise for smaller banks, pushing them to merge or be acquired by the systemically important banks. That is, Ackman says, uh, I don't think this is good for America. That does it for us, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.